I just want to I just want to let you guys know this. Me and Ryan get this opportunity every week. We get this opportunity to preach God's word, which is good enough. I mean, this is good enough. Uh, and then you throw in the fact that we look around every week and we get to preach God's word to our brothers and sisters in Christ. I look all around this room and I see people that I love, people that we walk with. This is a mercy from God of what He's doing in this church and the love that He's given us for one another. And this is an awesome thing. So I just praise God for this. I want to say that on the front end, that we are thankful for this opportunity to preach God's Word to our brothers and sisters in Jesus every week. Okay? Now, if you haven't been with us the past few months now, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark together on Sunday mornings. We've started in Mark chapter 1, and we're going... Uh, verse by verse, all the way through Mark, and we've made our way today to Mark chapter 9. So if you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles, we're about to start in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And we're going to go today uh, all the way to verse 29. The first thing we're going to do together, this is the most important words that you will hear all day long. We're about to read the Word of the living God together. So prepare to hear from the living God Himself. And I invite you to read Mark chapter 9, I'm going to start with verse 14, and we're going to read all the way to verse 29 together. Here we go. It says, When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Him, were greatly amazed and ran up to Him and greeted Him. And He asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and he rolled about, foaming at his mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on him. On us and help us. And Jesus said, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Father, we, we draw near to You, Lord. In Your name, we gather together according to Your commandment, Lord. You've, you told us to do this. God, and we, we come together under Your Word, under Your authority, Lord Jesus, and our prayer today is speak, Lord. Come speak to Your people. 
Come speak to us, Lord Jesus. Come feed Your people, Lord. Come feed Your flock. This is our prayer. This is our cry, Lord. Your Word is powerful. Your Word is living and active. And Lord, we pray, God, that You would use it in our lives, that You would use it in Your church. Lord, we confess to You that You don't help us, Lord, that this time will fall to the ground in vain. But we come to You with faith, Lord, with confidence, God, that You have willed, You have determined to use Your Word to sanctify Your bride, to sanctify Your church. Thank You, Lord Jesus. Come do Your work among us today. This is our prayer in Your name. Amen. Amen. So our passage today, uh, if you haven't been with us, like I told you, we've been coming verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. So last week, if you weren't here, Ryan took us through the passage about the transfiguration of Jesus. Okay, And in all three synoptic Gospels, which that word just means Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in all three of them, you have these side-by-side stories. Transfiguration and this story about a demon-possessed boy. Three times over in God's Word, they're side by side. So this is, there's something that's be, being communicated to us with this contrast. So think about this. Think about this. Think about where we were last week and where we're at now. Think about the contrast between those two places. Last week, Jesus is on top of a mountain. And for a moment, this holy moment, he, this veil is pulled back and the disciples see the glory of the King of Kings. And, and, and this veil is pulled back and, there, and there's shining bright light and there's glory. And then the voice of God the Father booms from the heavens. Booms from the heavens. This is a moment of glory where the disciples got a glimpse of Jesus and in, in His exalted eternal state. Okay, And so just imagine you're there. And then from this life-altering encounter, they come down this mountain. And the first thing that they encounter after this this moment of glory, the first thing that they encounter is this father with a demon-possessed son. So think about this. They got a glimpse of the glory of the king of kings, and and then they come down the mountain, and the first thing they see is this work of this demonic king named Satan. They see the work of the the demonic king face to face. So they get a glimpse of glory, and then they get a glimpse of the work of Satan side by side. Do you see this contrast? Mark is intending to show something about Jesus to us from this contrast, and he's intending to show something about the Christian life to us from these two stories side by side. He's intending to show us something about Jesus. Consider this. The royal king of glory has come down this mountain to engage Satan, our strong enemy, and deliver needy humanity. This is the character and the nature of Jesus. He could have stayed on the mountain. He could have stayed on the mountain and and received unceasing worship, but He comes down the mountain to confront our enemy and to deliver needy humanity. So, one glance, you get a glimpse of Jesus in His glory and His majesty. And then the very next glance you get of Jesus, He uses this glory and this majesty to extend grace and mercy to sinners like you and me. He uses it. He comes down the mountain and He uses His power. He uses His authority. This glorious King has come down to deliver us from our strong enemy. An enemy that was too strong for us. Jesus came down to confront Him. So this passage today highlights one of many confrontations between Jesus and the demonic realm in the Gospels. This is one of many of these. And I want to remind you that 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, 
says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So this contrast in Mark 9 shows us something about Jesus and it shows us something about the Christian life. Consider this. Imagine you are one of the three and you're on the mountain with Jesus and you see Him in His glory. And you're thinking, it don't don't get no better than this. And you see Him in His exalted state and then you come down this mountain and you're on cloud nine. You're floating on cloud nine. And then the first thing that happens is you walk into a raging spiritual battle. Do you see the contrast, the shift? Okay, and this tells us something about the Christian life. On top of the mountain, they were caught up in a moment of worship, a moment of glory. And then they come down and from that... From that place, that exalted place, this glorious experience, they enter into a, to a season of warfare. The Christian life is worship, and the Christian life is warfare. This is the picture that Mark is painting for us. In your life as a follower of Christ, it is God's will for you to draw near to, to the living God with unthinkable intimacy, unthinkable closeness. And may the Holy Spirit of God give you millions of moments of worship and glory where you bow down and you see Jesus in His exalted state. And you worship Him. May God do that millions of times over in your life. But it is also God's will for you as a follower of Christ that you would come down from that mountain and that you would engage in a battle, in warfare, in conflict, in a spiritual battle. This is the will of God. This battle ends in eternity. But it doesn't end until eternity. The Christian life is worship and the Christian life is warfare. There are glorious mountaintops where we encounter the glory of Christ and then we come down to minister in the name of Jesus to the suffering world. This is the picture. This is the picture we get in Mark chapter 9. Jesus must teach His disciples this lesson. They wanted to stay on the mountain and cast a big tabernacle and worship Jesus. And Jesus says, there's work to do. There's needy humanity to be engaged in My name. So He must teach His disciples this lesson because very soon, they're going to stand in the Savior's place when the Savior is removed from the earth. So in this passage, Jesus teaches this lesson through a tremendous failure in ministry by the disciples. He could have taught them this lesson in a lot of ways, but He allows them to walk into a huge failure. And this is a reminder for us that our sovereign God can create situations and conditions in our life to create crisis moments, moments of testing. He knows exactly where you're weak. He knows exactly the situation to put you in to cause you to grow where you need it most. And He's not afraid to put you in a situation where you will fail in order to teach you this lesson. So this is, this is what he's doing. He's about Jesus in the same story. He's about to reveal and demonstrate his authority over this satanic kingdom. And at the same time, he's about to teach his disciples a lesson about faith. So let's start in verse 14. And we're going to walk through this passage together. Let's start in verse 14 through 16. It says this, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately... All the crowd, when they saw him, were amazed and ran up to him and greeted him and asked them, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So they come down, and Jesus and the three come down this mountain, and they walk into this conflict. And you find out, Mark tells us, that they're arguing. The crowds are arguing with the disciples. The enemies of Jesus are arguing with the disciples of Jesus. Most likely they're arguing about the fact that the disciples just failed 
Okay, most likely these scribes are ridiculing the disciples. You just failed. They're, they're, they're charging the disciples most likely with claims of you, you claim false power. You claim false authority. And Jesus walks up in the middle of this conversation. He said, what are you arguing about with them? Let's pick it up in verse 17. He says, someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. Let me just say this before we go any further. If, 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 you know how you can get stuck in these moods. If you are in a happy, clappy, floaty mood this morning, this passage is full of pain and misery and torment. We're going to have to wake up to the Word of God. Okay? And, this, and the, we're, about, we're walking into a passage about a demonized little boy, a tormented little boy. So I want us to see, press in, press in if you need to wake up to this. I want us to see the pain and the misery. There is a little boy that is being tormented. There's a father in this story that we just were introduced to that's in emotional turmoil. Just think about that if you're a parent. Okay? That shouldn't be real hard for us to identify with. A little child, our little child in, in torment, demonized. And, and this father is in turmoil within. And then these disciples are dismayed. They have, they have been confronted with satanic power and they couldn't come against it. They couldn't stop it. There was nothing that they could do. And so this is a, this is a painful situation. This is a situation of, of turmoil. And Jesus walks right in the middle of it. And we're introduced to this man. Now before I go any further, we're about to talk about exactly what this passage talks about. Uh, that's, that's the thing about preaching the Word is you, you go at what, with what it gives you. Okay, So we're about to talk about in a second, we're about to talk about the reality of the demonic realm. Okay, And I just want to say this before, before we go any further, that there are some unique temptations in, in doing what I'm doing right now and doing what me and Ryan do every week. There, you start to learn people that you walk through life with and you learn what they like and what they don't like. And you learn what they believe and what they don't believe. And there's a tremendous temptation in what we're doing to man-please. There is a way, when I learn how you think about what you think about, I can say things in such a way that, that I, I'm not really saying what I want to say, I'm saying what you want to hear me say. Does that make sense? So, I just, want to, I just want to say this, that there, there is a temptation that we face, maybe not every week, but often, to say what you want to hear instead of what we see here. Now, there's a way to do this even, even deceptively, okay? And what I mean by that is, you can sound real hardcore if you stand up in front of people and scream about straw men, about false things that other people in other places are doing, and you can tear it down every week. Prosperity gospel, charismaniacs, and you can just tear it down every week. But really and truly, not a lot of people in this church are struggling with those things. And so I sound hardcore because I'm coming against things every week, but you see what I'm doing? I'm, 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 soft, I'm soft peddling. I'm not, I'm not preaching to the people that God has entrusted under me. And so this, this is a concern for me. This is a concern for me and Ryan for this church. 
We are about to dive into the reality of the demonic realm. Does that make you uncomfortable? Does this make you uncomfortable? This is a, this is a huge thread throughout the Gospels. This is just reality. Just reality. Jesus has given us authority in a realm that you need to know something about. And we're about to, we're about to dive into this. Let these verses, if you need this, let these verses be a reminder to you, to your ears this morning, about the reality of the demonic realm. Demons are real. Demons are real. They weren't just in the New Testament. They're real. They're, they're created, wicked spirit beings that hate God. Demons are real. They are under the authority of a demonic king named Satan. They're not mythological. They're not ancient superstition. Demons are real. Let that be a reminder to you this morning. Here's another reminder to you. Not only are they real, demons are evil. Demons are full of hate. They hate God and they hate humans who are created in the image of God. Listen to John 10. 10. It's, this is the goal. This is the entire goal of the, satanic, of the satanic kingdom. John 10, 10 says, The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So, here's the reminder. Demons desire to inflict pain and even death on humanity. In certain situations such as this one, they are even capable of inflicting physical harm on a human body. Even a child, even a small boy. This is the reality of what we're confronted with in this text. And let this be a sobering reminder to you. There is a war that is raging even now in this unseen realm. Our only hope is Jesus. Luke's Gospel Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke's version of this story tells us that this father brought his son, but Luke tells us that this was this man's only son. This man brought his only son to these disciples. This little son was in the grip of a personal demonic spirit. He was demonized. When this demon exercised its power, it shut down the vocal cords of this little boy and it made him mute. He couldn't talk. You see the, 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 the control that it was exercising over this boy's body. And then listen, when he would attack this little boy, he would violently seize him and beat him to the ground. His symptoms resembled massive seizures that are associated with severe forms of epilepsy. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, if you read Mark's story of this same account, Mark calls this little boy an epileptic boy. So this boy has epilepsy and this boy is demon-possessed. And that ought to tell you from the front end, we need to be very careful when we go to speak into how demon possession and physical sickness intertwine. How that, how, how, we need to be very careful about how we speak about that. Because the bottom line is we don't know from this passage if this demon gave this little boy epilepsy or if this demon manipulated something in this little boy's life that was already there, we don't know. What we do know is this is a very real case of demon possession in the New Testament. This demon is exercising significant control over this boy's body. The only remedy to this situation was that this spirit needed to be driven out and cast out of this little boy. 
That was the only remedy. So what did his father do? His father brought him to Jesus' disciples. You see that back in verse 18. This was a, a legitimate uh, this was a legitimate strategy for the father to bring him to Jesus' disciples. These men were authoritative representatives of Jesus. Go back two chapters in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. These men on their first mission trip, they were sent out into Galilee. They were sent out as authoritative representatives of Jesus. When Jesus sends them out, He sends them out with authority to cast out demons. That's Mark 6, 7. And then you go down to Mark 6.13 and you find out that these men go and they preach the gospel all throughout Galilee and they cast out many demons. These men had done this before. It was legitimate strategy by this father to bring this boy to the disciples. They had done this before. They had cast out many demons. But something very strange happens when the father brings his son to these disciples on this day. What they had done many times before, they were suddenly unable to do. They could not cast out this demon from this boy. How do you think Jesus responds to this? How do you think He would respond in your mind? You think He says, oh, don't worry about it, guys. Can't win them all. Better luck tomorrow. And you might be surprised that Jesus responds to this situation very seriously. Listen to verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. First, I want you to see that Jesus is rebuking his disciples along with an entire generation. And then the second thing I want you to see is, notice what Jesus didn't say. He, he didn't look at their failure and say, you powerless generation. They were powerless. They couldn't do what they once did. But Jesus goes to the root of their problem. There's something underneath their lack of power. And Jesus exposes the root of this problem as a lack of faith. The phrase faithless generation would probably be translated better as unbelieving generation. Faithless gives you an idea that they had no faith, zero, zilch. But the real problem was they had faith in Jesus, but they had this mixed heart of doubt. They, they had this heart mixed with unbelief toward Christ. They were an unbelieving generation. Jesus does not allow these disciples to feel justified in this failure. He confronts it as sin, the sin of unbelief. Let's go to verse 20. You're about to hear some sweet words from Jesus if you're a father with a demonized son, he says, bring him to me. And then in verse 20, they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. This is a picture of demons hating to be in the presence of the Holy One, the Holy, Holy, Holy One. As soon as this demon is brought forth into the presence of Jesus, it starts raging. It hates Jesus. This demon hates God. It hates Jesus. This is a picture of this battle that rages. This demon knows. It knows that it can't go after Jesus. So it goes after this little boy created in the image of God. Do you see the warfare? Do you see this? That this demon fights tooth and nail to the very end. Rages even in the presence of Christ. Verse 21 and 22. 
Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening? And he said, from childhood. Verse 22, it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. So we're just brought into some additional background to this story. And it's unbelievably sad that this father had watched his son being tormented from very early in life. Many times this father had watched his son go near-death experience, near-death experience. Many times and in many ways this demon tried to kill this little boy by burning him alive or by drowning him in the water. Do you see the hatred? Sometimes we have this romanticized idea that surely, surely they wouldn't go after kids. I mean, sure, you know, like kids got like, you know, surely they get some mercy. These are merciless beings full of hatred and murder. Demonic. This boy was tormented. When this demon attacked him, he became deaf and mute. How sad is that? He can't, you would think if you're his father, you want, to, you want to lean in and you want to comfort him with words and you want to pray for him and you want to say it's, it's going to be okay and this boy can't even hear his dad's words of comfort. He can't even tell his dad, Daddy, I'm scared. He can't say anything. He's being tormented. When is the last time that you were reminded about this reality? Let this be a reminder for you this morning. Let this be a wake-up call that there is a battle that rages. There is a battle that Jesus sends us into. Let this be a wake-up call for you from God's Word. Verse 22 continues, If you can do anything, this is what the Father says, If you can do anything about this, have compassion on us and help us. So this little boy was tormented and this father's in turmoil. And he rightly appeals to Jesus for compassion. Because there's no one more compassionate about this situation than Jesus. There's no one that cares more about this situation than Jesus. So this father rightly goes to him. Have compassion on us, Lord Jesus. But there's something mixed into this man's appeal for compassion. That's way, way, way off. He says to Jesus, if you can. So, Yes and amen to this appeal to, to the compassion of Christ, but he, he throws a no-no right in the middle of that statement. And listen to how Jesus responds. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. So imagine Jesus responding to this man's question. He says, If? Excuse me, let me make sure I heard this right. Did you just say if? If I can? Did I hear that right? And then he flips this man's question right on its head. And he says, the question is not if I can. The only valid question in this exchange is can you trust me? Can you believe me? Is what Jesus says to this man. The limitation is never on Jesus' end. It's always on our end. Jesus is infinite in power. There's nothing that Jesus can't do except for sin. That's about it. He can do all things because He has infinite power. Notice that Jesus does not say all things are guaranteed to the one who believes. He says all things are possible to the one who believes. So there's a real popular you know, cable channel with a bunch of gold chairs on it that you can go hear all about this all day long that you know, Jesus said you just, you just believe it and you get it. 
That's not what he said. He didn't say all things are guaranteed to the one who believes. That's the heresy called name it, claim it. That if you believe that you're going to get a million dollars, that you get a million dollars. Come on. Come on. This is not what Jesus said. Jesus said, all things are possible for the one who trusts. So Jesus is teaching this Father in this holy moment, this desperate moment. Jesus is teaching this Father that faith is the means that God uses to act. And I'm going to talk to you about that for a minute, about faith being the means to the power of God. I'm going to give you an example of what I mean when I say faith is the means. So everybody's on the same page about this. You're going to go home at some point today. You're going to go somewhere. And you're going to walk into this dwelling that has something called running water in it. Okay, Your house, your apartment, your trailer, wherever you go. And you're going to go and you're going to turn a faucet on and water's going to come out of the faucet. Who gave you the water? The city government, maybe you live in the country, you know, county government. They're sending you water into your house, into your apartment. But the means by which you're getting this water into your house is this vast network of water pipes in the ground. Y'all know I have to go construction to give you examples. The city is giving you water in your house through water pipes in the ground. The water pipes are the means. If you have water pipes in the ground, it is now possible for the city to send water into your shower. If you do not have water pipes in the ground, it is impossible for the city to send water into your house. This is the exact same thing that Jesus is teaching this man. All things are possible to the one who believes. The one who is standing in a place of faith and confidence in Jesus is standing in the place to receive the power of God. And the one who is standing in a place of unbelief is standing in an, in an impossible place to receive the power of God. Faith is the means. So faith, trust, and confidence in Jesus. This is how we access the power. This is how we draw down the power from heaven. For the things that God wills to do. Let me say that again. Faith is the means through which we draw down the power of God for the things that God wills to do. Do you understand that? All things are possible for the one who believes. Again, trust and confidence and faith in Jesus does not mean that nothing will ever, nothing bad will ever happen to you. That's the name and claim it heresy. Hebrews chapter 11, somebody referenced this earlier. Hebrews chapter 11 is the, the, uh, the hall of faith. Isn't that what they call it in Sunday school growing up? Something. Okay, so it's like, by faith, so-and-so did this. By faith, so-and-so did this. And you get to, to, towards the end of the chapter, and you find out that some who walked in faith on the earth, they were cut in half. They were cut in pieces. This doesn't mean that nothing bad ever happens to you. It means that all things are possible for the one who believes. It means that when God wills to release His power, His supernatural power, he does so through a person that has confidence in Christ. You understand that? Listen to this example about God searching the entire earth to find this person to show His power through. This is 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9. It says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward Him. 
This is who God is looking for. His eyes are going throughout the whole earth and he's about, he's about to act and He's about to do something through a certain type of person. This is what Jesus is teaching this Father. This is what God desires to do. He's taken this man from unbelief to a, to a place of confidence in Him because He's about to release His power through this Father. Verse 24 says, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I love that prayer. I love that prayer. I prayed that prayer many times in my life. I love that in the Word of God. This mixture in this man's heart. Yes, Lord Jesus, I believe, but there's something in me that I wish was gone. Can you help me with my unbelief? And you see this picture of this man. This father is brought to a place of crisis. His son needs help from Jesus. And Jesus is dealing with his father. He wants to take this man into a place of confidence. But before he does it, he has to expose this father's unbelief. And he does this. And this man comes with tears to Jesus. Brutal honesty. Lord Jesus, I believe. But Jesus, please help my unbelief, Lord Jesus. There was a mixture in his heart. Did you know that there can be a mixture in your heart towards Christ? That you can believe and that you can have unbelief. That prayer that that man just prayed, if, if you were real honest in this room, I bet you that we could find many, a uh, few if not many examples in your life where you could play, pray that same prayer that that man prayed. In this situation, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I got more unbelief in my heart in this situation than I wish I had. And just like this man, in those situations in our life, we need to move from a place of unbelief to a place of confidence in Christ, confidence in Jesus. Why? Because all things are now possible for the one who believes. This is how God acts. This is how He does things. He does things through confidence in Jesus, through faith in Christ. So this Father comes to the right person and He prays the right prayer. He expresses to Jesus, Jesus, I do trust You. Jesus, please help kill this sin of unbelief in me. And this is all the Savior was waiting for. An expression of faith and the sin of unbelief to be dealt with. And then Jesus acts in holy power. Jesus responds to this Father's faith. And the power of Jesus was released through this, through this Father's faith. Listen to verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together... He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. This demon refused to respond to the words of the disciples, but he didn't refuse to respond to the word of Jesus. Jesus gives them the, the command of authority. This is the king of glory speaking to these infinitely lower created beings. Jesus takes authority. The time for messing around was over. This has been going on long enough. This boy is tormented. Now this father's faith was strengthened and Jesus pours out the power. He takes authority over this demonic realm and the power of Jesus is released. Jesus does this publicly. This demon had resisted the commands of these disciples publicly and demon, the, Jesus sends this demon out the back door publicly in front of the crowds. This is a power display of Christ over the demonic realm. Verse 26 and 27. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. Verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. 
So this demon made one last assault on this boy. This is what demonic obedience looks like. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? That demon obeyed Jesus, but he obeyed like a demon. That demon did what Jesus told him to do, but he hates Jesus. He hates Jesus. He's convulsing the void to the very end. There is actually some debate among scholars as to the condition that this demon left this kid in. Some say he's really dead. Some say he's almost dead. We don't know for sure. He's either dead or he's unconscious. He's near death. What we do know for sure is in verse 27, the boy rose. And what I want to show you is that word is literally the word for resurrected. When it says that boy rose, that's the Greek word. That boy was resurrected. He was raised. So Mark is giving us, they're, they're little breadcrumbs in this gospel. To Mark is showing you where we're going, where we're headed. Mark is giving us a veiled picture of death and resurrection in this story. And we've seen this before. Very often, Jesus' physical miracles also serve as spiritual signs. Say that again. Very often, Jesus' physical miracles also serve as spiritual signs. And the same in this story. And this miracle, lost humanity, is shown to be in the grip of Satan. The one who has the power of death. But Jesus comes and takes authority over Satan. He destroys Satan's work. When Jesus dethrones Satan in our lives, Jesus literally reverses death. When He takes us back from the one who has the power of death, He reverses death in our life. That's the picture of death and resurrection that we get in this story. Casting out this demon and raising this boy are just a foreshadow of what's coming where Jesus is going to drop the final hammer on the satanic kingdom with His cross and His resurrection, His triumphant resurrection. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. This is the hammer blow that Jesus has done for us. Through death, He destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus did that. On His bloody cross, He he demolished this enemy of God. This strong enemy of the people of God. And through faith in this crucified and resurrected King, we enter into Jesus' victory over the demonic realm forever. This is the good news of the Gospel that Jesus delivers us from our strong enemy. This is a picture in this story. Verse 28 says, When He had entered the house, His disciples asked Him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And He said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So, the story happens. This demon is dropped out. And once they get back, we don't know exactly where they're at, but we know that they're in private now. Now the, uh, they're in a private conversation with Jesus. And then, the, and then the elephant in the room comes up. They're sitting there talking. They said, why couldn't we do it? Why could we not cast this demon out? And what Jesus lets us, lets us in on in this story is that the disciples on this particular day had bumped into a situation that Jesus refers to as a this kind. This kind situation. This either refers to a very strong demon or a very strong case of demonic possession. Don't know for sure, but it's a this kind. And Jesus tells them the only remedy for this kind of situation that you ran into today is prayer. This kind only comes out through prayer. Some of your versions add the word fasting, but the earliest Greek manuscripts, they don't include this word. In fact, it's highly unlikely that Jesus 
expected the, the twelve to fast during this period of time because earlier in Mark chapter 2, he tells his disciples that while the bridegroom is with you, it's not a time for fasting. So Jesus tells his disciples that the reason that they couldn't cast out this demon was that they were not praying like they should. And this is why it didn't happen, guys. You're not praying like you should. This, only, this kind only comes out through prayer. Now, this is very interesting. Because the exact same question in Matthew's gospel is asked, and Jesus gives them a different response. He says, "This kind only uh, you didn't cast it out because of unbelief." And in the earlier, even in this passage, when Jesus responds to the initial news about the disciples failing, he says, "Unbelieving generation." So why here does he call them out on prayerlessness? And in Mark's gospel, he calls them out on unbelief because these are connected. Okay. Prayerlessness in your life is evidence of you walking in unbelief toward Christ. They're connected. Unbelief is the fundamental problem, but it expressed itself in the disciples' life through prayerlessness. Okay? Real quick, this is a side note. The reference to prayer here is probably not a call for the twelve to pray, God, please send this demon out of this boy. It's probably not that. Because in every instance in the New Testament, when a demon is cast out of a person, that demon leaves because of a word of command given by Jesus or one of Jesus' disciples. That's the only way it happens. So most likely, what Jesus is teaching here is that a lifestyle of prayer would have put these disciples in a place of confidence toward Christ that would have given them the ability to draw down power from heaven and command this demon to leave this boy. A lifestyle of prayer. The disciples had fallen into a prayerless lifestyle. This is a tremendous warning that would be really good for you to perk up and start listening to. What does this mean for me, Lord Jesus? The disciples had began to walk in a prayerless lifestyle. In Mark chapter 6, verse 13, they cast out many demons. Somewhere along the way, they began to trust in their own efforts their personal giftings, their past ministry success. These men had cast out many demons, but they began to take the power of Jesus for granted. They thought it was automatic. They put their walk with Christ on autopilot. They made it mechanical. And they presumed upon Jesus. But there's no such thing as a mechanical walk with Christ. We have to seek Him daily. We have to bow our knees and call out to God. We cannot rely on yesterday's faith. We need faith in Jesus in the present tense, not the past tense. We need present faith in Christ, present confidence. Confidence in Jesus two months ago, this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about right now, do I trust Christ? Do I, am I confident in Jesus? William Lane, commentator, says this, The disciples had been tempted to believe that the gift that they had received from Jesus was in their control and could be exercised at their disposal. This was a subtle form of unbelief because it encouraged them to trust in themselves rather than in God. Think about the application to all your ministry that you do for the Lord Jesus. That you can put it on autopilot. And the tremendous temptation for us is that we begin to trust in ourselves instead of in Christ. Instead of in Christ. So, in your personal ministry, in your life, in all the ways that you seek to serve Jesus and labor for Christ, you need to know that presumption and self-sufficiency 
are deadly to your spiritual life. They're deadly. Let this passage be a reminder to every person in this room of how dependent you are to be on Jesus. John 15, 5. This is a reminder. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And yes, nothing means nothing. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. That's how dependent we're to be on the Lord Jesus. This is the way He set it up. We don't get to pick. In all of life, we can do nothing apart from Him. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, if we provoke the Lord to leave us for a season due to unbelief, we will soon discover that our power is gone. Like Samson when his hair was cut, he was as weak as any other man. This is the same way. We can't play games with unbelief. Our God for a season will withdraw His presence and His power from us. He will teach us this lesson. I would remind us all that when we walk in seasons of unbelief, Jesus is able to put us in situations to expose our sin. He's the sovereign God. He's able to work things in your life to bring hard things in to expose this unbelief in us. So I'm thinking, okay, I, I would prefer that not to happen in my life to where Jesus brings something into my life and I fall flat on my face before I see my unbelief, before I see my self-sufficiency. So I'm thinking... Jesus gave us this story so we could learn this on the front end, that we we could get on the front end of this lesson, that Lord Jesus, I want to trust you. I want to trust you. I don't want to get in the middle of a ministry situation, in a situation where I need your power, a situation in marriage, a situation in your family, to where I need you, and I fall flat on my face because I don't trust you. I want to learn it on the front end. I want us as a church to learn this on the front end. Jesus expects us to trust Him. Jesus expects us to live a life of confidence in Him. So I want to ask you a question. We'll close with two points of application. Brothers and sisters in this room, how is your confidence in Christ? How confident are you in the Lord Jesus? How confident are you in Christ? Are you full of confidence? When I say mountains in your life, That means different things to different people in this room. So when I say that, I mean the hardest things in your life right now. Are you trusting Jesus Christ to move mountains in your life right now? Are you you trusting the Lord to do that? Or are the mountains in your life, the hardest things in your life, causing you to waver and doubt Jesus? Are you full of confidence? Are you wavering and doubting in the hardest areas of your life. I'll give you a reminder. Doubt is not the goal of the Christian life. Faith is. Faith is the goal of the Christian life. The entire life of the believer is to be dominated by faith in Christ. Listen to Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Listen up. And the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul just described his entire life as a believer, as a life of faith in Jesus. My entire life on this planet as a believer, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live by faith in the Son of God. That ought to be a banner that you can hang over your entire walk with Christ. 
How is your level of confidence in Jesus? We are powerless as Christians only when we are unbelieving. I got this phrase to help you remember this on your sheet. Followers of Christ who are walking in confidence toward Christ are able to access the power of Christ. One more time. Followers of Christ who are walking in confidence towards Christ are able to access the power of Christ. Or let's put it in the language of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16. Commandment. In all circumstances. You ought to be thinking, that sounds like a lot. Yeah. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. How is your confidence in Jesus Christ? And in case that question is a little vague for you, in case that question is hard for you to understand, I'll give you another one that's real practical. It's a lot more on the ground. How's your prayer life? This is evidence of how confident you are, how reliant you are on the Lord Jesus. How is your prayer life? Listen to this Samuel Chadwick quote. He says, A great concern of the devil is to keep the saints from praying. Satan fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom. But Satan trembles when we pray. It sounds, when he's, that quote sounds like somebody's taking up the shield of faith and going to war in prayer. He trembles when we pray. Do you go to God often? How is your prayer life? This is one of the main evidences in, in your life of, of how your relationship with Christ is. Is there Christ dependence in your life or self-reliance? But even if we're praying, even if we're praying, did you know that it's possible for us to pray in vain? Did you know that? That there's a way to pray, say even daily, there's a way to pray and it's empty. This idea of prayer coming to God in the name of Jesus, this is not an empty ritual. This is a living encounter between us and the living God. There is a real interaction. There's a real exchange. He really hears and He really answers and we really receive things from God. This is real. This is a reality. Don't fall into these bad ideas of this cold, empty ritual. Prayer is a living relationship with God. If we desire to walk with God in prayer, we must learn to come to God with confidence. Now I'm about to close, and I'm going to give you several reminders from the Word of God. This is how God demands to be prayed to. I want, to, I want you to ask yourself, when we read these verses, there's four of them, I want you to ask yourself as we read them, is this the way that I pray about the hardest things in my life? Does this describe the way that I pray about the hardest, most difficult situations in my life? Let's go. Mark chapter 11, verse 24. Therefore, I tell you... I'll wait for you to get there. I hear some pages turning. Mark chapter 11, verse 24. Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you receive it and it will be yours. That doesn't sound like someone just dropping a few coins in a prayer box. 
That sounds like somebody taking a request to the King of Kings in the name of Jesus and believing the living God's going to answer me. Whatever things you ask in prayer, believe that you receive them. How are you obeying that commandment? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What an awesome invitation that we get to come to the living God and receive things, receive mercy and find grace. And I want you to see the what precedes that person receiving mercy and finding grace in that verse? And somebody says, draw near. And I say halfway, right? Draw near in a certain way. Confidence. With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Do you see the theme? Is this how you pray? Do you go to God with confidence that He's going to hear you? That He's going to answer your prayers? James chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. says, This is about a man asking God for wisdom. It says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts, listen to this, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Did you know that there's a way to pray and waste your time? It's called praying like a double-minded man. There's a way to ask God for things, to approach God and to ask ask God for things like a double-minded man. And James says, that person's not going to receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because God said the means was faith. God is looking for the one who's full of confidence to release His power through. This is the way He set it up. Do you pray like this over the hardest things in your life? Do you pray double-minded? Last verse. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this will bring a small corrective to this whole conversation. Because the last thing I would want anybody in this room to, to hear me say is, Dustin said I could go ask the Lord for a million dollars and as long as I believe it, I'm, I'm good to go. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going ahead and, and getting in debt because so I, I know it's coming. I'm, I'm going to pay it off when it comes. No. Okay? First John, let that person read First John 5, 14 and 15. Listen to this. This will sum it all up. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. If we ask anything according to His will... We know that He hears us. If we ask anything according to His will, we know that He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. Can you hang that as a banner over your prayer life? Over the hardest things in your life that there's confidence that you know that the living God has heard you. This is the one that God is looking for. This is the church that God is looking for. The one who comes with confidence in this living God. Is this how you pray? So I, want to, I just want to say this over us as I close. May the Lord Jesus Christ banish double-minded praying from our church. May He banish it from our hearts, from the secret place, from corporate prayer. Every single double-minded prayer that we would ever even think about bringing to the Lord, may He banish it. May He banish it from us. Nothing is impossible for the church that prays and trusts God. All things are possible for the one who believes. And so I say, may he banish double-minded praying. And I want to say this, and then we're going to pray. I believe that the Lord Jesus can help our unbelief. Do you? I believe that he can. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word.
God, we thank You for even the fact that this is recorded for us. Even the fact that this, this failure, this lesson is recorded for us is great mercy from You. And we just thank You for it, Father, for Your mercy toward us in Jesus. And we want to take heed, Lord. We want to incline our ear. We want to listen to Your Word. And we pray, God, that You, through Your Holy Spirit, Lord, that You would drive this passage into our soul. And Lord, we just pray. We just pray what we said, God, that You would kill unbelief in our midst. That You would put it to death through Your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that You would raise up men and women of faith all across this church, Lord. God, I pray that You would do it. You're the author and the perfecter of faith. You're able, Lord. I believe that You're able to help our unbelief. And we pray corporately, even now, that You would do it, Lord Jesus. Be exalted in this church. Be exalted in this church, Lord Jesus. Amen.